0: If you look at it, more than 90% of the construction and deliveries have actually happened in the urban core. And that's been a big part of the supply demand imbalance. So if you see where the pain points have been through the pandemic, it's actually been more in the urban core, where you've seen rents have actually decreased by almost 6% in the high cost coastal markets within the urban core versus a moderate increase in the suburban products in kind of, you know, non-gateway cities. And so that's been an important part of the story.
1: Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in depth conversations with successful real estate investors conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth investment knowledge and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website eliproman.com to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Today, I'm speaking with Saurav Goswami. And so, you know, Saurav is a really, really smart guy, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him recently. He's the Managing Director of Strategic Capital Partnerships at Beckingham Properties. And before Beckingham Properties, Saurav was the Managing Director and Senior Principal with Walton Street Capital which is a top 25 global real estate private equity firms. And over there, he managed the firms India and Singapore offices. But prior to that, he also worked at Merrill Lynch in the real estate investment banking division. And he started his career back in 1996 in the Goldman Sachs real estate equity research team. So as you can see, someone with a lot of brains, someone with you know, really interesting and diverse background. So he received his bachelor's in economics from Harvard and MBA at Columbia. So Rob, he loves traveling, having visited over 34 countries to date. And he's a huge Yankees fan, which we might hear about it later. I would like to welcome Saurabh to the show. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm excellent I'm excellent so you're we're recording this this is march second twenty twenty one Can you tell me a bit about what you do and where you are right now
0: right now I'm in New York City, and you know what I do is you know i've I've been doing real estate for twenty six years in addition to working at buckingham i I also have been teaching global real estate markets and investments. At NYU in the Shack Institute of Real Estate, and to the MBA and Master in Real Estate students, you know. But yeah, I think from the standpoint of career-wise, I've, I've been doing real estate almost my whole life. So that I guess sums me up pretty simply.
1: Yeah, is it something that you've always known that you wanted to be in real estate, or it just happened this way?
0: You know, to be honest, it's you know, my father was in accounting to start. And then one of his clients was in real estate and and over time he switched over and joined there and kind of helped them grow their business. And so from that standpoint, throughout my kind of youth, I did learn quite a bit about real estate from him specifically around, you know, tax issues and cash flows and things like that, that relate to real estate. And so I think that was one area where the interest came about initially. And then when I started at Goldman, I actually had two offers, one in the tech team and one in the real estate team. And and so kind of a spur of the moment decision to kind of go into the real estate side and kind of stayed there since.
1: Very nice. Very nice. Before we kind of get to our main discussion about the current state of the real estate market, which I know you probably have a lot to contribute to. Can you just help me kind of understand a little bit more about how your day to day looks like? What do you do on a daily basis? And so, you know, that's, I think, going to help me and the listeners understand a little bit more about you.
0: Sure. So, you know, right now, I think what we've been focusing on, so what Buckingham focuses on within our commingled fund business is that we look at, you know, workforce housing, affordable with a lowercase a, multifamily throughout the Midwest and Southeast. And so, you know a big part of what i do is identify which of the markets we want to focus on how those markets are doing key statistics that are of interest specifically with an eye towards well what's going to resonate with our investor base and so as we look to get new investors in we have to be able to convince them of our thesis right and we also have to convince them of you know why these markets because these are not the markets that a lot of overseas investors have necessarily known, right? The high cost coastal markets, the gateway markets are much easier to pick on a map for these people versus going and telling them, you know, you should be investing in Cincinnati or Nashville or Columbus. Being able to convince them of the merits of those markets and and why they're institutional takes a little bit more education. So a big part of my day-to-day is driven by kind of identifying what resonates in these markets, how to communicate that, finding, you know, working with the team to find the best opportunities in those markets, and then continuing to kind of grow the investor base over time as well.
1: All right. And you've been doing it for how many years?
0: 26 years now. So
1: 26 years,
0: wow. Not multifamily for 26 years. So with Walton Street, I was covering Asian markets for almost 10 years. And so And prior to that, you know, I did non-traditional real estate with a firm called Rexon Strategic Venture Partners, which was an offshoot from a former public company, and Associates, which was run by a guy named Scott Reckler. Scott Reckler now started and runs RXR Realty, which is another leading real estate company. But with them, I did a lot more non-traditional real estate. And with Merrill Lynch, I started off on the advisory side doing investment banking before I moved over to the principal side for the last, you know, four and a half years, been focused on multifamily in the United States.
1: So you've seen the market when it was pretty much hot four or five years ago, it was still hot, it's still hot today. And one of the things that, in my opinion, is kind of interesting, is that on one hand, you see a lot of pain, you see small businesses are closing, tenants are not you know, able to pay or at least it looks like they're not able to pay. People lose, you know, their jobs. We have the stimulus checks and we have, you know, other programs to help people. Kind of an historic event, if you will. And then on the other hand, we're looking at multifamilies and demand is at all-time high. I can tell you I was bidding on a property, it was above seventy five million dollars and there were thirty other Groups bidding with me, which hasn't happened you know so far when I was looking at large deals. It was me and another five seven groups. It was easier to get the deals, but looks like there's so much capital out there. Cap rates are a bit down, and I'm you know trying to reconcile between those two extremes. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts,
0: sure. So look, I think part of it is driven by other fundamental factors. Like, you know, if you look at urban sprawl, a lot of these cities have been, you know, non-gateway cities have actually been growing. And as they've been growing, because of suburban sprawl, there's been an increase in demand for suburban garden style properties. Over the last, you know, decade, if you look at it, more than 90% of the construction and deliveries have actually happened in the urban core. And that's been a big part of the supply-demand imbalance. So if you see where the pain points have been through the pandemic, it's actually been more in the urban core, where you've seen rents have actually decreased by almost 6% in the high-cost coastal markets within the urban core versus a moderate increase in the suburban products in kind of you know, non-gateway cities. And so that's been an important part of the story. In addition, I think what's important to note is that, so that there you have obviously a lack of sufficient inventory to compensate for the movement to the suburbs and and the you know the cohort of the age cohort of people that are renting and renters by choice has been increasing as well. so that's a big part of it. The other part, frankly, is that you have a new generation of inv- or a new subset of investors that have started looking at multifamily as an option as a countercyclical play and as a defensive strategy. if you look back over three decades the risk adjusted returns for multifamily has actually been the best of all asset classes. So people, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to seek out a less volatile space where you have a reasonable cash and cash distribution, more of your return comes from cash flow. I think that's been a part of it. But you're right, I mean multifamily, the demand for multifamily assets has been strong, but more so in the value add, you know, suburban product. If you look at the urban core, there's actually been more, not distress necessarily, because I, I don't think we've actually seen any real distress in the marketplace outside of certain asset classes, but you've seen some softness in the core and core plus markets where you know, you're know you starting to see a more you know, concessions. You're starting to see a little more vacancy. You're starting to see negative rent growth, which I think will stabilize, but may take some time given some of the supply overhang.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and you know, especially when I'm looking at some of the internal migration patterns, where do people move from and to? Then you see markets like Atlanta or Dallas or Austin, where basically tenants from core markets like New York, San Francisco, L.A. move to because it's more affordable. Those states, you know, tend to be more open than other you know core markets during the pandemic, so. People just left. I think that at some point, the strength of the core market is going to, in terms of demand, not so much yield. But in terms of demand, I think it's going to go back, but it's just going to take time. I don't know if 100% of the tenants that moved out of those core markets are actually going to move back. As time passes by, they get older, they might want to settle down, or they find that they actually like those secondary and tertiary markets. What do you think about? The near future, you know, the next 12 to 24 hours, do you see the same trend continuing or do you see some migration and demand back to those core markets?
0: So look, I I think that people conflate the pandemic with the move out, I think, erroneously. To be honest, migration patterns were already in place to some of these non-gateway markets and they were just accelerated to a little, to some extent. By the pandemic, a couple of other trends that the pandemic kind of facilitated and accelerated was also the adoption of technology and prop tech. I think that's been another big story during this you know time period. But what's happened is, and this is this is not dissimilar from other periods of time, is that as companies start to grow and as they start to seek out an expand expansive employer base, employee base, they they start to look where. Affordability metrics are stronger, not necessarily just because they want to hire people at a lower cost, but because their employees who are younger and a little more mobile also may want to have an ability to start families and benefit from a cost of life perspective, right? That said, you know, as you mentioned, there's an in- inherent gravitational pull to these core markets that is driven by benefits that accrue from density. So MIT is actually, I think you went to MIT, I believe. Mm-hmm. MIT actually had done a study that demonstrated that there are incremental productivity gains due to density. And so from that perspective, what you're seeing is a backfill, right? So as people move out, those people are not necessarily the ones that are going to be moving back in, but there's a backfill. There are new populations that grow in and move into these mm-hmm. cities. And as there's a bit of a soft, in, in near-term softening in rents, it's becoming more affordable. People who would want to move into the urban core, but were unable to and were priced out are starting to do so. That's driving another shift. So if you look at markets like New York City, New York City historically has been, you know, financial services. Well now what you're seeing is you're seeing an emergence of Prop tech and Fintech and technology-driven companies that are moving into certain pockets of New York. You have Amazon, you have Google, you have Facebook, you know YouTube, which is part of Google. Expanding their footprint in these markets. And so I think what you're seeing is an evolution of the kind of tenancy, the office tenancy you're going to have, which in turn has a meaningful impact on the types of, you know, the the age cohort and the types of renters you're going to look for, even on the multifamily side and extending beyond that. And so there's a shift in the fabric of the urban core that's being driven both as some of the financial services companies kind of expand out and go into other markets but also some of the tech companies start to look at the urban core as as areas where they can start to especially now with rents being a little bit more moderated establish a toehold and plant their flag in the ground and start to expand on that scale as well.
1: I'm wondering how that move is going to impact non-multifamily cuz you know obviously when companies when they make a move to a certain market that generates you know higher demand and higher occupancies, higher rent growth. And I'm trying to think, because I know, for instance, in Atlanta, Microsoft is coming to Atlanta, but also there was another company, I believe Airbnb said they're going to move most of their tech employees to Atlanta to create kind of a tech hub there. And the intention is to keep the headquarters where it is in San Francisco, but to kind of divide and conquer and move a lot of its, you know, employees to basically to Atlanta. And I'm wondering, so obviously, they're going to be the immediate area, the immediate submarket is going to rise. And I'm wondering how that's going to impact other asset classes, such as, you know, retail, for instance, or hospitality, if they're going to be, you know, if they're going to be impacted as much as multifamily, would you would you say that that's that's a fair possibility or you're basically prefer to stay focused on multifamily?
0: I mean, as a fund, we're going to stay focused on multifamily, but in terms of the impact on on not, the knock-on effect on other asset classes, of course, I mean, you're going to have, you know, I would suspect that you will see an uplift in performance on those asset classes in those markets as well, because as you have big employment drivers, that also means that the transient population. So multi, you know, hospitality benefits from a retail standpoint, you may have seen, I think a few days ago, Macy's, you know, put out a note that they were going to, you know, exit all C-class malls and focus their efforts on A and B quality malls, which are typically in larger cities. And so I think you're going to start to see that also start to happen where you're going to see better performance in some of the retail centers. I think it's going to drive a lot of determining factors on logistics, right? You know, people are going to have to start to rethink how their last mile delivery works. If you start to have densification in markets like, you know, Nashville and Atlanta and, you know, Austin and and markets like that, you're going to have to start to create a different type of infrastructure to support that. I think there's a point at which that densification hits a roadblock, which is to say, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint, city planners have to take a long, hard look at what it means to be you know, you don't want a market that creaks on its own infrastructure, right? And you've seen that in a lot of emerging countries and emerging markets where the infrastructure was developed and built thinking about a certain level of growth. And if you kind of exceed that, not just exceed it, but significantly exceed it, it starts to tax the system quite a bit. And so I think we may just start to see that in certain markets and, you know, it'll have to start being addressed and that'll create a natural kind of not break, but it'll slow things down a little bit, you know, as as people kind of re-rationalize how that works. It also means that as some of these tech, you know, these significant tech players start to reallocate resources regionally, it's going to have, you know, an impact of reducing the cost of locating in the markets that, that they're exiting from. So you're gonna have other emerging companies come up and take that space. So I think there's a certain inertia. So as large corporates start to move into other markets, it takes on a life of its own. And that starts to become much more significant. And as one large company enters into a market and therefore generates a set of employees who can be poached by other large companies, those other large companies start to locate in that market. And I think Atlanta is going to benefit from that. And so will some other markets like Nashville and and others. But I do think that in the long term, that's not to say that the urban core and some of the high cost coastal markets won't recover at some point. I think that it's reasonable to expect that that'll happen you look back 2500 years a pandemic has not caused a, a reverse to the urbanization trend right it it slows down it it moves back but then it you know kind of catches up and accelerates again and that's happened for 2500 years i don't suspect it'll stop happening in the future i don't think the remote workforce concept is one that's going to be widely adopted necessarily, because I think there's an inherent benefit to being in an office that people enjoy being in offices. I think people like the camaraderie of being able to interact with people around them and the proximate benefits of being you know, able to share ideas across the table versus doing it over Zoom.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that there will be some, I don't want to say regression, because it has a negative connotation. But I think we're going to go back to the office. But I don't know to what extent. So I think at least some of the companies are going to find kind of a hybrid model where some of the teams or, you know, part of the week employees are going to work from home. And the other times, you know, they're going to be interacting directly. I think we're social creatures. We like that. And creativity happens where, you know, where you meet someone, where you're actually in one room. It's, there's something that is lost when it's done 100% remote. I think it opened a whole new category of the whole remote. It didn't open the new category for remote work because it was always there. But I think a lot more businesses are more open to integrate that in their operations.
0: Right. Not to play devil's advocate, but there was a company once upon a time called Yahoo. Mm -hmm. I'm sure put something you remember, but it obviously so Yahoo had experimented with the whole concept of, you know, work from anywhere. And they discontinued it because they, you know, this isn't our first trip to the rodeo, right? There's been times over the last decade plus where people espouse the benefits of kind of having a mobile workforce. And it's been talked about before and people tried experimenting with it. IBM was, you know, famously tried it and discontinued that. Yahoo had tried it and discontinued it. And the reason they discontinued it is they saw a marked decrease in innovation and an inability to create a work culture that is instrumental in being able to maintain camaraderie and loyalty to a company right you had much more churn and turnover in environments where there's not a cohesive culture and so those are things that i think are important to keep in mind and you look at look at amazon amazon said that as soon as practically possible they want people to come back to the office and I think there's a number of consultants and companies that have kind of come out and maybe not, it's not been the most popular comment in the world, but they've come out and said that there's going to be, you know, almost like a stratification of how companies perceive employees, where employees that are in the office are perceived as more dedicated than employees that are not. I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't think that's necessarily a reason, you know, it's not always true and it's not a leap that people should make. But I think people are conditioned to find increased FaceTime to be a barometer of dedication and engagement. And that's just a fact of human nature, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in your words. I think we'll see in about a year or so, we'll see what's happening in the market. And I'm very, very curious to see how that's going to impact real estate. You know, from multifamily to retail and more. So I think there's still more to explore and to see. And we'll see where things are going to take us and, you know, what's going to happen with the option of managing people remotely and having a remote, you know, workforce. Well, Sarabh, I want to thank you for, you know, your time today. We have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Sure. All right. So the first question is about your favorite hobby.
0: You know, I, I have a number of, I think right now, and it was driven largely by the pandemic. I love cooking. And so I've learned mm. a lot more. You know, I, I started experimenting a lot more with food and cooking. And so that's been something that I've, I've kind of taken on during this pandemic and so that's, that's something I guess I would say is, is a hobby.
1: Alright, and then what's the one thing that people don't know about you and you are comfortable sharing today?
0: I really I don't share much to be honest so I'm not sure whatever people know about me is generally what I'm able to share and then I guess some people aren't aware that I used to be quite heavy but most of my close friends know that and so I hate losing bets. And so somebody made me a bet and that was the impetus behind my decision to lose, you know, almost was it 40 pounds and it was driven there was a you know very I'm a bit of a nerd so it was very scientific it was a scientific approach towards how to maximize the incremental benefit of different types of regimens both from the standpoint mm-hmm. of dietary as well as exercise and how to create artificially, how to increase my metabolic rate and how to artificially increase my body's ability to generate HEH and things like that. So everything is always a research project for me.
1: Wow, that sounds really interesting. I bet some of the listeners would love to get your notes on that one. So the next question is, what do you wish you had known when you first started in real estate?
0: I wish I knew where cap rates would have ended up today. When I started in real estate, people would look at a eight or nine cap rate and say, oh my God, that's expensive.
1: <laughs> wow. And So
0: back then, it was just the REITs were at its infancy, you know, the migration of, you know, taking assets and moving them into institutional ownership was just starting out. You know, Blackstone as a fund didn't yet exist in its current iteration. And so I think things were very, yeah, it existed, but not in this iteration. And and it, it was, I think at that point, people were looking at, you know, real estate a little bit differently. And so gearing was much, much lower and, you know, within the public vehicles and public entities. And so I think it was people looked at opportunistic real estate from a very different with a very different plan. So, yeah, I wish I knew directionally what cap rates would be in 2021. I sure was, sure would have bought a lot more. So All
1: right. So, Rav, what's your number one advice to high net worth individuals and family offices that want to scale and grow their real estate portfolio in 2021?
0: Focus on sponsors that are very data driven. At the end of the day, real mm-hmm. estate is not a short-term investment. It's not a buy now, flip out tomorrow type of thing. It's very, it's, it's fundamentals tend to move fairly slowly. And for people who are very research-oriented and research-focused, you can kind of project out where things should be and can be. The capital markets fundamentals don't rapidly move to a point where things get wiped out, right? You can see the forward yield curve where ex- you know, markets expect interest rates to be. You can get a sense of where demand is going to be based on kind of information. And so if you invest judiciously, you should be able to create a fairly stable portfolio. But it's always important to make sure that you find sponsors that are very, very data driven and focused on the performance, the underlying performance of the cash flows and less, you know, and their returns are less predicated on a significant uplift on the reversionary sale of the product.
1: Yeah, that's music to my ears. So Saurabh, if listeners want to get in touch with you, reach out to you, where can they find you?
0: LinkedIn is probably easiest. Saurabh Goswami. And, you know, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. I'm not, unfortunately, very active on social media. And so it's, I think that's generally the easiest. So if you look up just Surav Goswami, S-O-U-R-A-V, and last name is Goswami, G-O-S-W-A-M-I. And I think there might be a few people with the same name. I, I don't know if there are, but if there are, then if you kind of conflate that with searching for either Walton Street or Buckingham, you'll find the right person.
1: All right. So, Rob, thank you so much for spending the last 40 minutes of your Tuesday with me. Actually, I don't know if you're ending your day now, but thank you so much for, you know, sharing your wisdom and your experience. I found it to be a very, very interesting conversation, and I hope that the listeners did too.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Absolutely. That's it for today, guys. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward, and I'll see you on the next episode.